0: Thrilling documentary film, four indomitable women fight back against America's most powerful nuclear industry to expose one of the most consequential and egregious cover-ups in our country's history. Radioactive, the women of Three Mile Island is an award-winning film about the 1979 Three Mile Island nuclear power plant meltdown, the worst commercial nuclear accident in U.S. history, and its aftermath. It uncovers the never before told stories of four intrepid homemakers who take their local community case against the plant operator all the way to the Supreme Court and a young female journalist who's caught up in the radioactive crossfire. And we are joined today by the director, producer, and writer of this incredible documentary film, Radioactive, The Women of Three Mile Island, Heidi Hutner. Heidi, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you so much, I'm honored to be here. This remarkable documentary film gives us a story that I doubt very many people know of. The women who were responsible for holding to account very powerful interest over what was a meltdown on U.S. soil of a nuclear power plant. Linda, Beth, Joyce, Paula, and others in the film, including Michelle Lefevre, are the unsung and mostly unknown heroes of a story that is incredibly important Uh, not only for the safety of all Americans in terms of holding people to account, but also the trajectory of nuclear power around the world as a viable energy source. So there's so many different things about their story that makes it relevant. Tell me a little bit about what brought this project into your life.
1: Well, I have been working on nuclear issues in particular around and in the space of ecofeminism, feminism, and also environmental racism or environmental justice for over 20 years. And I actually grew up in a home of anti-nuclear and environmental activists. My parents were very involved with the movement starting in the 1950s. And long after my mother had died, I found out a story about my mom, which I didn't know when she was alive, uh, she was involved with a group called Women Strike for peace and they are credited with uh stopping atmospheric bomb testing in the U.S um it, it, they got involved after women found out that a group of women led by Dagmar Wilson and then and um and, and Bella Abzug the first U.S congresswoman uh they found out that this, this fallout that there was this hundred nuclear test bombs in the Nevada desert. And they found out that this fallout had spread across the US and strontium 90 was in milk, cow's milk, breast milk, and so on everywhere. And when they learned this, they were outraged and they formed this movement very quickly. 50,000 mothers across the nation organized. Turns out my mother was one of three women. We were very close, and I I grew up with them, who went to Washington DC and lobbied, and they were successful in this. So I was really amazed and shocked that I never heard the story, not from my mother, not from my father, and it was just kind of lost in their general activism, I guess. But what a history, right? And I was so taken by this as a feminist that why did this piece of women's history get lost? Why did this piece of activism get lost? Very successful activism. I mean, so many people feel, well, what we can do? What can we do? You know, this is a Goliath of an industry, along with, you know, the fossil fuel industry and many other industries. So I love, and, I, and I'm a professor, and I love teaching about success stories because it can get very depressing in my courses on feminism and the environment to both see what happens to women and what's happening to our environment and what can we do. So in this process, I went on a deep dive down that rabbit hole, studying about women in nuclear history and nuclear history in general, and got very involved. And I literally was just, there's not enough time this morning, but there's just story after story of really important women in science And not just in, we all know about Marie Curie, but women who, like Alice Stewart, who discovered that a single X-ray to the womb uh, doubled that child's chances of developing cancer. Her work was buried. She was shunted into a back room of Oxford University. But on and on, you know, she's, there were one of many. And so I began writing about this and I began going to nuclear disaster sites all over, I got involved with the Fukushima activism when that happened because that happened after I learned this. And shockingly, it was mothers. Again, mothers are fighting and fighting against a really intense patriarchal system, which was silencing them and gaslighting them. And this story at every disaster site is repeated. Women standing up, to this very patriarchal industry saying, we don't feel safe. We want more studies. We're concerned about our children. And then they're being mocked and told radiation doesn't hurt you. You are being hysterical, you know, and they're all gaslighted. And so I was in this process and writing and being invited to write more and more papers for different books. I have articles in various books and in magazines, long list of them now. And, And as people kept asking me, I realized, well, I guess I'm being called to do this. I mean, I was working, at that point on all sorts of environmental issues and feminism. And I got a call in, well, not, I actually should backtrack. I think I got a ping on my Facebook about one in the morning, and I had actually just given a lecture about my mother and this history and women and nuclear activism from someone I didn't know. Her name was Christine Lehman. And she was involved with this work at Three Mile Island. And she invited me to come to Three Mile Island and speak as I frequently do, and uh, about this topic. And it was their 39th anniversary. And I said, well, really, Three Mile Island is one of the one of the few that I really haven't delved into yet. And she said, that's okay, you, you know, you're an expert in this, come along. So I went down and at that point I was starting to make a documentary. Um, I wasn't sure, I wanted to cover this issue, but I wasn't sure which site you know, and how to do it. What well, we do multiple stories? What do we do one? And when I got there, and the film opens with um, a scene where we're in the dark outside of the nuclear power plant at 4 a.m., March 28th. You know, they do this the same year, this group of people. Now it's become a very small group, but in the day it was hundreds of people and lots of press for many, many years. So we went with a camera and we thought, let's go let's just go see who knows. Right. And we went to this, it's dark, it's cold, it's misty out. You can't see the towers. We couldn't quite find it. There's no obvious sign. It just said, it just said, you know, this energy plant, it didn't say it was owned by Exelon at that time. And I was like, is this the entrance? We have no idea. Cause the, you know, the information said, go to the entrance at 4am. Well, we, we parked on a side street and who drives up, but these amazing four mothers, who then became the center of our film. And I said to them, is this where the, the, you know, the little protest, the vigil happens? And they said, yes, and they laughed because they're very jovial, you know, which makes the film so interesting. It's a very sad story and very serious story but they're hilarious and they have a great sense of humor and they have a, tr- this relationship they've had now for 45 years, because now it's the 45th anniversary coming up in March. And they walked me over in the dark on this road and we stood in front of the sign. And that's, that's the, that's where we started. And when we came home that night, you know, now it's, you know, it's some crazy hour and we, you know, it was still dark. We went back to our hotel room and we started looking at footage, and we said, oh my God, this is the story. And that was it. So that's how I got there.
0: Before we get too far into our conversation, I would like to identify some of the main players in this, the four women who are part of the Concerned Mothers and women, the group that began the effort to push back against the operators of Three Mile Island. And that would be Linda Hoagland-Brosch, Beth Drosba, Joyce Karate, and Paula Kinney. And I'd also include in that the uh, reporter who was a college reporter at the time, Michelle Lefevre Quinn, and there are many others, but those are the people in my mind who really are the catalyst for so much of what we see in the film. And they're the ones who bring to the conversation the meltdown and not often described that way, at least not at the time it was not described that way, but the reactor two at Three Mile Island, there was a meltdown. Yes.
1: No, you know, it's a meltdown. And, and a you meltdown. know, this, this is nuclear speak, right? A meltdown is a meltdown. To call it partial, <laughs> right, makes us go, well, not a real mar- meltdown. A meltdown is a meltdown,
0: period. Thank you for clarifying that. There's so many things about what happened at Three Mile Island that have faded into the ether of American history. There's so much about the circumstances surrounding it, and the cover-up. And what I so appreciate about Radioactive, the women of Three Mile Island, is that this history comes alive through them. So let's talk about that. When you met them, when you had an opportunity to get to see who they were, what they were about, how does that process begin? How do you become part of their lives in a way that they're willing to open up to you?
1: We went out to breakfast with them, I should say, in a diner that expects them. Of course, no one's there. One of those kind of all-American diners, which we come back to and have a scene later. A wonderful scene, by the way, which was very hard to cut because we wanted to include everything. But, of course, you can't do that. And I had a list of people I was going to interview, you know, sort of well-known figures through the movement that I learned about. But we kept coming back to the four. We went into their kitchen, Joyce's kitchen. And Joyce is the character who has five children and kept a um, daycare in her house. So, you know, her house feels like children's central in a very happy way. Mm -hmm. So we were in this kitchen, you know, with all this. They're all very, you know, Catholic. So there's this Christian symbolism all around us. And they're deeply ethical, moral people. Right. And you can just feel it and and they describe what those days were like for them and how their lives were changed and how their faith in the government which they had no questions about and they had no idea what nuclear power was i mean you can see the towers from Paula's house from her kitchen they all lived in a very tight little neighborhood kids going in and out of the houses it was sort of the you know it was leave it to beaver yeah an ideal childhood for their kids and they were home all the time. They will have little side businesses to supplement their incomes. You know, working class people, sweet, innocent, hardworking, good people. And suddenly their world's turned upside down. And they start studying nuclear power. They go to every meeting. And they the first thing they noticed was that every meeting they went to, officials had something different to say. And that, of course, <laughs> raised a lot of questions. And also that they were not told. On the first day of the meltdown, they'll still tell you that they didn't know the nuke industry, that they didn't know there was a meltdown. But we investigated this. They absolutely did know, or they strongly suspected. Even suspecting, wouldn't you let people know and at least give them the option to leave? Well, it turns out the worst releases were in that first, you know, it started at 4 a.m. and were on that first day. So people, kids are going to school. They're, you know, they're outside playing. Um, people just were completely unsuspecting. And this horrible plume was there. Their radioactive detective devices, the radiation was so high, they shut down. They, you know, so... Nobody really knows exact amounts, but we do know about the xenon-133, which our film goes into, and is going to change history and change our understanding of radiation exposures and what they do to chromosomes, specifically around nuclear power plants, which all release xenon-133 and krypton, which has been viewed and treated as benign. And it's not when you are exposed to it over long periods of time. And I'm not going to go into all the science, but I learned more than I could possibly imagine in this process. Amazing people came to me, a science study, a, a huge science study by the top people in this field. And the only lab capable of doing this ended up coming to me because they saw me promoting the film and raising funds. And they approached me because I now had all these contacts. I mean, part of doing science is you have to have the people. Now, I built all these relationships, so we've worked together and continue to work together. That's just one piece of it. But the main thing is that, for me, and what we see in the film, is through the eyes of the people who live there and continue to live there and continue to be lied to and who can tell their lies. I mean, If you go to different meetings by officials and they're all telling you something different and you're watching you know, you have metallic taste in your mouth, they had all sorts of experiences with animals dying, plants, you know, deformed plants growing. I mean, they were seeing it and being told over and over again. And then of course, many cancers developed and people died. But they're being told it's all in your imagination. It must be something else. And then the world left them, you know, all the news came. Some activists came and marched for a period of time, and we see Jane Fonda was very active. But after a while, they were just sort of left to deal with this alone. Now, these are these are working class people. These are not scientists. These are not attorneys. These are not wealthy people. How are they supposed to fight back? And it, it was dumped in their laps, you know, moms who are raising kids to do something. Right. They felt so appalled and so protective of their children. Most of all, they just wanted to get to the bottom of the truth. They didn't want to make things up. They didn't want to be hyperbolic. Paula always says, you know, we don't want to be chicken little. And so they just wanted answers and they wanted truthful answers and they weren't getting them and they were being balked. And laughed at. And so in our story, which is just amazing, I mean, the people who took this on, this waitress named Louise Bradford, working in the local coffee shop, what happened was the activists hired, you know, very good attorneys to fight this. And when they went to the, to the hearings with the NRC and they were being thrown a million things they were going to have to fight, and it was all on them, right? It wasn't the government coming to protect them. It was, well, you know, prove to us. You prove it to us. Yeah, yeah. You local citizens. So Louise so the attorney said, Listen, you can't afford us. This is going to be huge. And said, We're really sorry, but you know, and uh, and this waitress who had no legal background stood up and said, Well, I'll do it. And uh so she put a little ad out and she found someone named Joanne Dorosho who had just graduated from law school and Joanne agreed to help her. Now, why did Joanne do this pro bono, 25 years old, no experience? She had interviewed at the Capitol the day of the evacuation, which was three days later, by the way, two and a half days later. So what a betrayal, right? Um, And they knew there was an explosion at the plant on Wednesday. An explosion means there's a meltdown happening, right? And so to say they didn't know is just it's it's outrageous. It's outrageous. And so on two and a half days later, they told not everybody, they told women who are pregnant and young children should evacuate within a five mile range. Well, that's also idiotic. Yeah. Radiate if you know anything about atmospheric science, five miles what? Is there a wall outside of the five miles? You know, I mean it's ridiculous. Yeah. And only only little, very young children and pregnant women. Of course, it was utter chaos. Well, it happened on that day. Joanne, who had been told, Well, there's nothing to worry about. You know, that's what the news was saying. A potential accident. It didn't happen. Don't worry about it. So she went to interview that day for a job at the Capitol in Harrisburg, which is 12 miles away. And while she's there, That's when the announcements made and the doors shut down at the Capitol and they're saying, can't go anywhere. Well, she hightailed it. She got out. And of course she never forgot this. And so she made a pact with herself. If she were to go back and work there, she would have to help. She would have to help these people in some way. So when she saw that ad, meanwhile, she's working full time in a government job. And so, you know, by day she's working in a government job and by night She's helping with Louise and the two of them fight it, fight these, you know, 25 year old are fighting these this incredibly intense and powerful and wealthy industry that the commission, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is in bed with the nuclear industry, even today, you know, just fought them all. they Now, what they were fighting, there were several different lawsuits was MedEd wanted to reopen what. Reactor 1 was offline at the time of the meltdown. There were two reactors. They wanted to get that Reactor 1 up and running as soon as possible. Well, why? Because they wanted to dispel fears, you know, because now people wouldn't want nuclear power plants. And it was, you know, this this huge deal. So they, they were, and the regulatory commission, and this is before even studying what happened, examining it, making sure it wouldn't be repeated. Unit 1 reopened. And the commission's like, we're going to open it unless you can prove to us, you know. So so Joanne fought and fought and fought. And what she needed was the political will. To, you know, legally, it's you can't really fight the industry. They hold the power. She staved off the reopening with the help of the mothers and many other people in the community. This reopening for what they call the restart for five years. Eventually, the commissioners just said, we've had enough you know, there was so much evidence against them, including operators cheating on licensing exams in both unit two and unit one. I mean, so many things that they lied. I mean, that's outrageous, you know? And so we, we, we hold this belief even now with the advocacy of nuclear power that, you know, it's being safely operated, that there is incredible oversight and there isn't, right? So this is one piece of why nuclear power is so troubling. Again, even today. So the film kind of follows that that battle, that legal battle and all the corruption involved with that. There's no books written on this. There's no documentation of this story. It ended up being a five-year research project. I had to learn the lie. And the people working with me were so kind. I mean, Joanne, I can't even tell you how many hours she gave me because it's weird law. It's all about how do you deal with a nuclear regulatory commission and these regulations. It's not something that you would even learn, in, you know, in traditional law school. She said, you know, don't feel bad. This is a really hard and complex problem that we faced. You know, that is kind of this arc, which I hate to give away, but it's important for people to know because right now we have this huge push for nuclear power. It's clean, it's green, and it's safe. That sounds good. You know, that's called PR. And that's what's happening. And it's just, it's amazing to me. And I teach in a classroom, you know, and hundreds of students look at me, I've never heard of Three Mile Island. All we know is that nuclear power is safe. We don't even really know what it is. We don't know where these plants are. I said, you know where there's a nuclear power? How far there is? No, they don't know. They say, and they say no one's talking about it in their classrooms. You know, Even in environmental classrooms, they say, it's safe. We need it. It's great for climate change. And I can give you a long list of why that's problematic. But my argument is when you silence history, and we know this over and over again, you're silencing any point of argument, criticism, examination. You also silence potential. If we're going to have them, they need to be as safe as possible. We need to put every regulation in place to protect, you, and that's not what's happening. So people at least deserve to know this information is, you know, even if they come to the conclusion we need it, which I don't think they will if they know all the facts, but. that's up to people to make their own decision. But people need to have the information. And it's so difficult to find. It is just so... It took me so long to do this research and to dig in the most peculiar places. It's not in academic resources. The groups who work on it are always laughed at and, oh, those activists. But those activists are often scientists and experts and really smart people and lawyers. You know, and it's a system that happens again and again in our country with the cigarette industry with the pharmaceutical industry with the fossil fuel industry and what really disturbs me is you know environmental groups many of them have bought these lies without doing any of their own you know research and having enough information to make that decision and shouldn't we know by now we really can't trust any Large industry. And of course, the nuclear power plants have ties to the military. Every nuclear power plant produces plutonium. Now that plutonium has to be you know, altered in its composition to be weapons grade, but it is potentially weapons grade. Anyway, I think I, I, I've probably gone on for too long here. I'm very passionate mm-hmm. about the subject and very concerned about the cover ups and lies. And what this is doing to people across the world, not just here. And all of the meltdowns and all of the releases that take place that you never hear about.
0: I just want to take a second to remind our audience that we're speaking with Heidi Huttner, and she is the director of this incredible documentary film called Radioactive, The Women of Three Mile Island. And just to add to the point you were making about the industries that have essentially run roughshod over us, the consumer. I would also include in there the uh, pesticide industry with the the effects that uh, we're beginning to understand about the ingredients in these pesticides like Roundup and others. But to your point, these women were active and fighting against this industry for its lack of accountability in the 1970s. And this was a time when, and early 80s, when nuclear power plants were being built all over the country all over the world and this was the future this was going to happen and to their dismay and I put this in quotes Three Mile Island happened at a very inopportune time for them and so there's all of these things that are in this and the thing that for me is so infuriating about what happened and this lack of accountability, is these industries tend to look at these things, although they'll never say it out loud. This is the price of doing business. You know, you gotta make an omelet, you're gonna break some eggs. Well, where are the eggs in this analogy? And this is just unacceptable. So the heroism of the women involved in this story, and men, but mostly women, is astounding. And it is a story, as you just alluded to, isn't known. The fact that we sit here now, 45 years later, we still are learning things about what happened at Three Mile Island and the impacts it's having on people's lives is completely unacceptable. And just one last thing before I end my rant here, I do want to point out a couple more people that I think are important heroes in this and that Aaron Dateman is a man who comes in later on in the film and run some tests on these people, obviously here decades later, and we find out some startling information there. Also, Lynn Bernabe, who was part of the litigation in this, who did an amazing job. She was such a, the voice of reason and the voice of just kind of understanding the implications of all this. So there are others. Aileen Miyoko-Smith, a researcher who also did some invaluable work here, and Jane Fonda, who was there to stand up and say that this is unacceptable. Oh, and also, and I know we talked about or mentioned her earlier, Michelle Lefevre Quinn, if she doesn't call in to the reactor plant and doesn't get patched through to that control room, I don't think we're having this conversation about what happened at Three Mile Island. So
1: many. That was things. a sheer accident.
0: Yes, a sheer accident. If we don't get patched in, to that control room and don't hear those technicians and their reaction to what was going on inside the reactor, we may never have known what happened at Three Mile Island.
1: We can't talk to you right now. Things are crazy here. Yeah. That's the answer they got when they called in at the radio station. Just because the traffic controller happened to say, something's going over at the plant. I don't know what it is. Yes. And and so, you know, he calls in and and at, at the station where... The station manager where Michelle DeFever Quinn was at her first, you know, again, a young woman just out of college in her first radio job. And she sent down there to investigate, you know. And she was there all those days and she followed up and she talks about her story where, you know, she's a young woman. She has to worry about her health, her ability to have children in the future. Should she stay? Should she go? Ultimately, she decides to stay. You know, these 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 kinds of choices. In fact, her boss. And she, they, they carried all of their belongings to flee with, if they needed to, in the, in the trunks of their cars.
0: Once again, an amazing story. I mean, for those of you who've heard of Three Mile Island, you know kind of the big picture, that there was a problem at Three Mile Island, that uh, the reactors got shut down. You don't know the half of it. This is a remarkable story, so well told, about the bravery of a few People, predominantly women. Hence the reason the film is called Radioactive The Women of Three Mile Island, and it is currently screening at the Lemley Royal in Los Angeles through to December 14th, and it will be streaming on Apple Plus in Prime beginning on March 12th. Be looking for it, and we are coming up on the 45th anniversary of Three Mile Island on March 28th. So this is just a fantastic documentary film. I highly recommend it. It gets right to these stories. It involves you on many different levels, intellectually and emotionally. It I cannot say enough about the impact that this film will have on you and a greater understanding of the world we live in on many different levels, not the least of which is who's looking out for us. And it, in this case, it was these fearless women who stepped up and answered the call. One last thing before I let you go, you can find out more by going to RadioactiveTheFilm.com. That'll keep you up to date about screenings and more information about your work as well. So that's RadioactiveTheFilm.com. Any plans to come back to Los Angeles?
1: We're all over and we're coming back to California. We'll be screening in the Bay Area. We'll be screening in San Diego. Um, Likely we'll come back to Los Angeles because we get invitations all the time. Go to our website, RadioactiveTheFilm.com, and you can find out about our future screenings and where we are.
0: Very good. Okay, great. Director, producer, writer, Heidi Huttner. thank you so much for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio. Thank you.